Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, February 15th, we're studying Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. Jesus is back in the region of the Decapolis, and the residents there bring to him a man who is deaf and has a speech impediment. Jesus shows himself to be the Savior. He unstops the ears of the deaf, and he makes the mute sing for joy. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's a pleasure as always. As we get started this morning, Pastor Roth, let's talk a little context. We are in the end of Mark chapter 7. What do we need to know about the gospel, the immediate context, anything else that will help us with the verses we've got today? So this is one of those uh, very vivid healing miracles, but I would highlight, first of all, that in Mark's gospel, um, healing is a major theme. So just to highlight a passage you looked at not too long ago in Mark 6, that uh, wherever he came in villages, cities, or the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. So we have two things there. One is that he's healing, and two is that the physical touch of Jesus um, is is a healing agent in addition to his divine word. We've seen Jesus touch people for healing on many occasions. What we've got today in the touch of Jesus isn't as scandalous, perhaps, as some of the other touch that he gives. He touches the the dead girl in Mark chapter 5, which would have, you know, that would have made him unclean if you're looking at Leviticus, or similarly when he touches the leper in Mark chapter 1, or the woman with the issue of blood who touches him as well. This one's maybe not as scandalous, but still the, the touch of Jesus is very important. Today's text is going to be a very vivid picture of the touch of Jesus, maybe even unusual to our minds. Why is that touch of Jesus such a big feature in Mark's gospel and for us as Christians? Well, Jesus, um, uh, this is one of the ways that we see Jesus' divine nature. Um, in the transfiguration, of course, we see him in, you know, um, in all of his glory for just a moment. And, and it is now that glory shining through his touch that uh, because of his divine nature that he uh, then has that healing presence. So um, I think that's uh, point one. And, and related to that then, of course, in the church is that our Lord works through, works not only through our ears, but also through means of touching us. So he combines his word, his grace, and his presence with the water of holy baptism with the bread and wine of Holy Communion, it gives us his very body and blood. And if we wanted to go there, we could talk about how in in the uh, private confession absolution, the pastor is, is instructed to lay the hands upon the person, not so much necessarily as, as the pastor is some mediator of the divine presence, but as an emphasis that it is as if the Lord is laying his hand upon you and saying, I forgive you all your sins. I think it's, it's interesting that you mention that in his touch we see his divine nature, and yet touch is a very human thing. 
to do. And so I think in Jesus' touch and the fact that something happens when he touches invites us to reflect a little bit upon the the communion of his two natures, the two natures in Christ. Oh, how, of course. How, I mean, cause he's, yes, he touches you as God, but he's also, he's also a man. That's a very human thing that we see Jesus doing as well. You know, there's a fascinating story about some, uh, it's a terrible story really. Um, and I can't remember which country it was, but it was these, um, these news, newborn children that were put all into separate cribs and, and were deprived completely of human touch. And within a year, many of them died. So there's something, very necessary about, um, you know, intimate touch between, um, parent and child. Now, the first thing they do, you know, you and I have experienced this, right? You know, you've had four babies and we've had seven. And first thing they do in the hospital is they plop the baby down on mom's chest and so they can snuggle so they can, um, you know, em- enjoy that embrace. And so our Lord Jesus is not remote and far off, but comes and consoles us with his, his, uh, loving presence. And this is certainly an image we get from the old Testament as a, as a father loves his child, as a mother loves her child, the Lord loves us. And so that would certainly imply, um, intimate touch. You bring up the old Testament there. What old Testament passages should we have in, at least in the back of our minds as we approach this, these verses from Mark seven today, at least one that should be in the back of the mind would be Isaiah 29. Uh, 18 and 19. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. So this is one of those passages that tells us when the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah, who is Jesus, arrives, these these wonderful events are going to mark his presence. Now, one that we really should just have in the front of our minds is Isaiah, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, because I think it's without question that Mark has this passage in view. So I'll start with verse 4. Say to those with, who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance against foes, right? With the recompense of God, but he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. And the term for mute here is mogilalas and it's, it's only used in the New Testament here and it is used in the Septuagint, I believe only there, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it's hard to imagine that Mark doesn't have this passage in you know directly alluding to it more than just a passing reference but this is the old testament key for for interpreting this passage yeah mark i think you're right that isaiah 35 is going to be a, an important passage to keep in mind and isaiah 29 too that you bring that up uh, mark actually has jesus quoting from isaiah 29 earlier in this chapter when he's speaking against the scribes and the pharisees they're in a very negative context he talks about the scribes and Pharisees being hypocrites because they honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far. Now, I think we have an opportunity here to, and in Gentile context, no less, yes, yes. to to find once again those who who have faith in Jesus, where those who who were in the land of Israel didn't. the The contrast is very striking. I think absolutely. I mean, the immediate preceding lesson which you just studied. Um, was the Syrophoenician woman, 
and uh, and so her she she of course had tremendous faith in the word of Jesus. And then before that, Jesus had talked about how it's not outward things that make you unclean. I mean, the the uh, the the Pharisees especially thought that contact with a Gentile, you know, not you mentioned dead body earlier, but I think that they would extend. Um, they would extend the uncleanness simply to being in Gentile territory and especially touching a Gentile um, deaf mute. And I, w- I would also point out John nine is a, is a passage we might want to keep in mind as well, because there you have the, the man who's born blind and they asked Jesus, so who sinned this man or his parents that he should be blind? And of course, Jesus says, well, it wasn't nobody sinned that caused this rather it was so that the glory of God could be shown through this man's life. So Jesus healing him would be a manifestation of his glory. And so I think that um, there would have been an assumption that this deaf mute we encounter in Mark seven had a moral blight that would have caused him to have, you know, had this malady. Um, And then, so Jesus putting his fingers in his ears and, you know, touching his tongue, um, you know, this, this, I do think would have been uh, disgusting to the Pharisees. And so this is another instance of highlighting how uh, Jesus came, yes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And, and to see how the word of God is effective among the Gentiles, even when it's not being effective among the Pharisees, the people that really should have understood. You know, you have, a, I think, a, a bit of a callback there to the parable of the sower, where the seed is cast across the ground and Here's some good soil in a rather unexpected place, and, and yeah, I think you're. I think you're right, especially bringing in that idea from John nine that those who had a physical malady like this, particularly from birth, which it does seem that this man would have had, as we'll see when we look at the text, that there is an, an element of a scandal there as, as well when Jesus goes to this man particularly and heals him, even through the the touch. Any more introductory comments before we start digging into the text itself? I do think that it's uh, we're going to encounter the the so-called messianic secret, so that's something that we'll touch on when we get there. And you do see numerous times in the Gentile context, Jesus charges people not to tell. But then I also would like to highlight the the occasions when he tells them, you know, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and die, but don't tell anyone just yet. <laughs> and you get that at the end of the Transfiguration as well. So uh, we'll get there. Also, I think I'd like to highlight how in Mark eight the Pharisees will come and demand a sign from Jesus. And here it's not a demand of Jesus. They come and beg. Mm. And so we as Christians come to our Lord, not with you know any sort of leverage that we can use against him, but rather as beggars. Uh, remember Dr. Luther's final words, right? We are beggars. This is true. Mm. Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 31. Then he, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. 
and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. That's the text for today, Mark 7, verses 31 through 37. Pastor Roth, let's start with a little bit of geography. Mark sets the scene. Again, where was Jesus? Where is he going to? We're back in the region of the Decapolis. Give us just a little bit of geography and the significance of some of this. Well, it's a, it's a little bit strange because Tyre is on the coast, um, northwest of Capernaum. And um, so, uh, so, oh, so he's going from there. And then we're told he goes through Sidon. And so it's, it seems that's north. <laughs> and so it seems to be a rather circuitous route. Um, so it's, it's hard to say exactly why he goes that route. But at main point, he ends up in the Decapolis. And that is southeast of the Sea of Galilee, east of the Jordan. And so that we're talking about the area northeast of Jerusalem and southeast of the Sea of Galilee. So he's not, I mean, following the route on a, on a map, as you said, so north towards Sidon and then south and east, however he ended up back around on that side of the Sea of Galilee to the Decapolis. He He's doing this on purpose, this traveling. Right. I mean, I think if anything, we see that, which I think fits with what we saw in the previous text, where when Jesus goes into this region initially, he actually goes into a house. So he, he seems like he's He's doing things on purpose in Gentile territory, even as he, you know, he'll touch at the Sea of Galilee before going to the Decapolis. Now, we've seen him in the Decapolis before. This was where he was in, in Mark chapter 5, I think, with the healing of the, the demon-possessed man? Yes, yes. Well, I do think there, there, there could be somewhat of a transition from the first half of Mark to the second half, in which the first half he emphasizes the ministry to, to the Jews, and then the second after the Gentiles. And this would be actually a hinge point. So I think we see him back at back in the Decapolis. Sure. And he's not going to leave the Gentile territory right away either. We're going to see him in Gentile territory again at the beginning of chapter 8. And I, I do think a hinge point is is a, a good thing to bring out because I think Mark is, is really building toward at least a, a climax toward the first part of his gospel when we get to the confession of St. Peter, you are the Christ, and then Jesus' point, what that actually means for him to be the Christ. Mark seems to be building toward that moment by giving us both Jesus' ministry in Galilee among Jewish people and also now in the Gentile region in that similar area. Yeah, might as well be bring this up now. I mean, at the Transfiguration in Mark 9, um, as they come down the mountain— Jesus charges them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So we know then that that everything is driving forward to the cross. And I think it's really important to recognize that as soon as Jesus dies in Mark 15, it is a centurion, a Gentile, who says, surely this man was the Son of God. So, uh, I, I, I mean, the confession that you would expect to come from the mouth of a pious Jew comes from a Gentile soldier. And and it doesn't end up coming until Jesus has been crucified. Yeah. Which again I think fits very well with what we see Mark do throughout. And I we can talk more about that when we get to what Jesus says about don't tell anyone at this point. But it, it has to be at the crucifixion where we see Jesus as the Son of God. If we only see him as, say, a healer, as as this text could falsely lead someone to think that that's all he is, then we've we've missed Jesus. We have to see him go to the cross to to get him. 
Right. And I think this this uh, particular text is interesting because he seems to take the man aside privately. Well, he definitely does it privately. But one then needs to ask the question, who's around when he does it? And I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that his inner circle or his 12 perhaps were there. So um, he's clearly away from the crowd when he when he heals this man. But I, I think it's reasonable to assume that, that somebody was, some, some of the other disciples were around. And so that could then hint at a spiritual or, or symbolical understanding of what's happening here. Um, you get that later on in, in Mark 8, when the healing of the blind man is clearly connected to the gradual enlightenment of the disciples, that they start to finally get it. So here we could also, you know, it's not blindness, it's, it's deafness. And so there could be that, that hint that they're starting to have their ears opened up so that they're going to understand. I, I do think it would make sense that at least Peter, James, and John would have seen this. We have seen Jesus take them aside or along with him in a private moment back in chapter 5 when he raised Jairus' daughter. And we've noted before how Peter's eyewitness testimony seems to dot the text of St. Mark throughout, that, that there are things that, that Mark likely knew because St. Peter had told him. And, and that would make sense in a, in a case like this. One, one thing that I, I think with the whole matter of, of Jesus telling people not to talk, and I know we'll talk more about that, but he is in the Decapolis. And previously when he's in the Decapolis, he actually let that one man who he, whom, from whom he yep. cast the demon, he said, go and tell your family yep. how much the Lord has done. And it seems that that's, is that what's behind Jesus' popularity now that he's back in the area? Could be. I mean, I think the in, in the Jewish territories, he, he seems to be trying to manage his popularity to an extent um, and, and, you know, kind of strike a happy medium, not too popular, so that he draws too much attention from the governing authorities and, you know, his ministry ends too quickly. And I think it's possible that this could be happening in Gentile territory now because he, he is, you know, his reputation is spreading. And, you know, rumor flies, right? Word travels fast, especially when a great healer has come to town. So Jesus goes to the Decapolis, this area of 10 cities. That's what Decapolis means. It's a Gentile area alongside the Sea of Galilee. And, and it's, I mean, it's kind of a, a nebula. It's hard to maybe define sometimes, but it is a Gentile spot. Jesus shows up there and they bring to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. They begged him to lay his hand on him. Uh, let's talk a little bit first about the, the deaf and the speech impediment. The fact that he has a speech impediment is, I think, the reason we would say he's likely been deaf from birth. Yeah, because uh, having known some people that have lost their hearing, you know, later in life or or even in their their teens or 20s, they've already established the pattern of speech well enough to where they can speak without – they can speak very clearly even though they can't hear anymore. So I think that in cases where people are are deaf from birth – it's much more difficult to learn clear speech. Now, you, you mentioned, and, and we'll talk certainly about the, the physical healing. We don't want to neglect that. That's a, a key part of all of Jesus' miracles, that he undoes those effects of sin upon his creation. He, he restores, he recreates what has been broken. So we don't want to lose sight of the, the physical aspect by any means. 
But you mentioned that there may be cause for us to also consider this from a, a matter of spiritual hearing. So in terms of spiritual hearing, spiritual deafness, uh, what do we need to know along those lines as to the way the scripture makes use of that, that theme and that picture? So I think there, there's, you can actually work with both deafness and muteness. So um, starting with the deafness, um, I think that look, working from, say, Ephesians 2, where Paul talks about how we were born dead in sin and trespasses, we're naturally then, by nature, spiritually blind and spiritually deaf, so that we can't really hear the Word of God and believe it. Um, so I think Romans ten seventeen is is certainly a passage that needs to, to be brought into view here. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So it's that Word of Christ that then opens the ears and then gives us the capacity for hearing. But then that also loosens our tongue to speak. Uh, Dr. Luther has a, a commentary um, uh, on in, in um, oh he's talking about uh, Genesis uh, oh, 42 or so when when the brothers of Joseph are um, they're dumb they they uh, they are not able to speak they're afraid to confess their sin he also says that Adam in the Garden of Eden when God says where are you Adam uh, what have you done you know, he says Adam is is his tongue. He's tongue tied. He can't he can't confess his sin. And so also then we, um, until we have that word of the gospel that says, repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we too are mute and are fearful to open our mouths to confess our sins and want to justify ourselves instead. But uh, when the gospel comes into our ears, then it liberates us, it loosens our tongue, and we're able to say, I confess I'm a poor, miserable sinner, but I confess that my Lord Jesus Christ died to pay for all my sins. Whenever the matter of, of deafness comes up, my mind also goes to the matter of idolatry as well. I, I think it's in Isaiah, I can't remember, I think like 42, where the Lord tells his own people that they've become deaf, they haven't heard correctly. And I think it's in Psalm 115 where the Lord is describing idols, and, and he'll talk about how idols can't hear, idols can't see, idols can't speak. And then he says that those who worship them become like become them. Become like them. Yep. That's so important to recognize that you become—well, you don't want to push this too far, but you become what you worship. And uh, there, you know, that doesn't mean that we become gods, but we do become holy through the worship of God, through faith in, in the one true God. Um, and, you know, it's, it is in Second Peter. It talks about how we become partakers in the divine nature. So as we share, as, as our Lord shares his holiness with us through the means of grace, we then, through that worship, are sanctified, that is, made holy, and are become more like our Lord. I think the the matter of Jesus touch plays into that as well that through contact with the one who is holy we become holy. We've talked a little bit about that in in areas where that nature of uncleanliness is a little more in view. And again not that it's not it certainly seems to be in the background here but with leprosy and the issue of blood it's a little more in the forefront I think that when Jesus the holy one touches that which is unclean his holiness actually goes to them. And, and so here's the connection I'm trying to make here. Jesus as the one true God, the one who truly can hear, and the one who truly does speak, 
It is when we are in contact with him that our ears become opened and our tongues become loosed. Whereas when we're worshiping idols, we become like them and, and we don't really hear. Or, I mean, you know, is that the, you know, there? that's where, uh, it's in Mark 4, where Jesus is going through the, the parables and you get that Isaiah quotation that, that they, you know, they're seeing, but they don't actually perceive mm-hmm. and they're, they're hearing, hearing, but they don't actually understand. Actually understanding. And it's only when, when you're in contact, when you trust in the, the one true God, as you see him in the person of Jesus Christ, that your ears are actually open, that your mouth is actually loosed to, to do yeah, true hearing and speaking. I think you see something similar in Second Corinthians when Paul talks about how when the, the Jews are reading the scriptures, when they're reading Moses, they still have this, this veil over their eyes. They're not able to see. But when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, then you can actually truly understand uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ and the Trinity. I would also highlight, um, if we're, if we're going to stick with the spiritual interpretation of this passage for a minute, after the man's ears are open, well, it's really an interesting word, his akoi are open, which is, it's is another, it's not the normal word for ears. It's the function of hearing. Mm-hmm. His hearing is open, which is the same word used in, in uh, Romans ten seventeen. hearing. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. So that ephatha, be opened, has opened this man's ears. And then his tongue well, the, the, the bond of his tongue has been loosed, and he speaks orthos, which is an adverb meaning uh, correctly or rightly, clearly. But it's where we get the word orthodoxy. And orthodoxy, of course, means the tr- proper or true doctrine and true worship. And so after our Lord opens our ears by the gospel and, and loosens our tongue, then we're able to confess our faith, the orthodox faith. Yeah, Jesus again. That that I think brings back to mind the Romans ten passage as well. That that faith comes through hearing, hearing through the word of Christ, and and in again when we're we're listening to him, then we truly hear. Or you know, I mean, you mentioned the, and I don't think I don't know if it's the same verb or not, but the Mount of Transfiguration where the Father identifies Jesus as his beloved Son, and then he says, "Listen, listen yeah. to him, hear Absolutely. him," mm-hmm. and and that's what happens very in a very physical sense for this man. And, and also, as we are saying for, in a spiritual sense as well uh, for him and, and for us, and we'll keep digging into that here on sharper iron. You're listening to Mark chapter seven with pastor Carl Roth. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, February 15th. We're looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. We have Pastor Carl Roth with us. He serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, prior to the break, we were talking about this man who's deaf, has a speech impediment, 
the some of the spiritual implications of that as well. And it is the residents of the Decapolis who actually bring this man to Jesus, which uh, reminds us a little bit of something we've encountered previously in the Gospel of Mark. Yeah, back in chapter 2, um, they had, the, the house was so full, Jesus was preaching the word, they couldn't even get in the door, so they, they cut a hole in the roof, and they lowered the man down, and this was a paralytic. And Mark tells us that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, and of course he, let, he, he gives the man the gift of, of uh, um, limberness again. So um, I, here we see them, the people bringing the man to Jesus in faith, and begging or encouraging him to lay his hand on him. So that they clearly have confidence that if Jesus does this, if he lays his hand on him, he will heal him. So um, I'd like to connect that to something that we do as Christians, and that is bring our children to Jesus. And the real question is, how do we do it? <laughs> um, do we just do it in their minds? Do we do, just do it by reading a Bible stories? Or is there an actual place where we can bring them to Jesus for him to reach down and touch them and bless them. Why don't you answer that question for us, Pastor Ross? <laughs> well, this is, uh, anyone listening, right, should recognize here, we're getting at uh, baptism. And um, we bring the little children to Jesus. And he says, do not forbid them, do not hinder them, but to such belongs the kingdom of God. In fact, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be like a little child. That means only giveable to passive, not bringing your works, not bringing your justifications, not even bringing your confession of faith, but simply coming to Jesus to receive his free forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. And so um, we should, we should uh, well, as, as Dr. Luther puts it in the large catechism in, in regards to baptism, we see a man's hands pouring the water, but really we should recognize that it's Jesus doing it. Yeah, I mean, in the same, in the same faith that these people bring this man who's deaf and has a speech impediment to Jesus, so we bring our children to Jesus in the same faith, and we bring the children to Jesus according to the means that he's given. And he very clearly lays that out for us. The way he makes disciples of all nations, and babies are included in all nations, is baptism and teaching. And so we give those gifts to our children. We bring them to Jesus through those means so that he would lay his hand on on them, and I, you know, we've already talked about that a little. We may get to it more—the very physical nature of the way Jesus comes to us in word and sacrament. Now, Pastor Roth, you mentioned this a little bit. So, when it comes time to actually do this miracle, Jesus starts with physical touch, and Mark is very vivid in the way that he describes it, and Jesus is very vivid in the way he does it. Jesus actually takes his fingers and puts his fingers into his ears. He spits and touches the man's tongue. Why? Why all this physicality? Well, I, I would also point out that in Mark 8, Jesus will, you're going to get there pretty soon, he's going to spit on the eyes of a blind man at Bethsaida. So the spitting part seems a little weird to us, but it's not unprecedented. Um, the laying on of hands, of course, is not, there's nothing radical about that. But the putting his fingers in the ears, that's unique to this text. Okay, so one practical reason might very well be that this man was deaf, and so Jesus wants to signal to him what he's doing. And um, I, I actually think you can re read all of what Jesus does um, physically prior to saying Ephatha as um, a way of speaking the word to this man 
um, without him being able to hear. And I let's remember that the word of God can be communicated to people through um, sign and through um, well sign language. So you know the the LCMS has um, deaf ministries and you know works to um, provide the the word to people um, through through those ministries uh, that use American sign language. Um, so that's that's important to recognize that we can indicate to people things and and teach them to understand what our Lord has done, even without the gift of of, of hearing. Mm-hmm. So I think Jesus is communicating with this man. So he he says, "Look, I'm going to put my fingers in ears to show you what I'm going to do. I'm going to touch your tongue to show you that I'm going to loose this tongue, and then I'm going to look up to heaven to show where the power to take care of you is going to come from, and then." The sigh is very interesting. I don't. Uh, maybe he's lamenting or, or you know, feeling in himself the the bondage and groaning of the creation that Paul talks about in Romans eight. Uh, but then the the word of Jesus is what actually does seems to be doing the opening. In this so case. so we don't want to look at the physical things that Jesus does in some sort of magical way. It's right. it's not that Jesus spit is somehow. Magic. It doesn't have, yeah, I don't know if there's another way of saying There's not some sort of like incantation going on here. This is actually the power of God in his word at work, and Jesus is communicating it to this man in a way that he can hear before his ears actually hear. Yeah, yeah and I mean, think about our sacraments as well. Um, the word is the essential element that has to be added to whatever physical element there might be. So, Water itself is just plain water, but with the Word of God, it is a baptism. The bread and wine is just food, but with the Word of God, it is the body and blood of Jesus. So we can never isolate these physical things, um, yeah, in sort of a magical way, that these these things have something, some sort of power independent of the power of God's Word, the dunamis of God's Word. Yeah, the, the Word has been a a very important theme for Mark all along, even as much as he's emphasized the actions of Jesus, the word is always right there. And particularly in a passage like this, where Mark actually gives us the Aramaic word that Jesus spoke, ephaphtha, which means be opened. We've seen Jesus do this before. In Mark chapter 5, he speaks to the girl who's, who's dead, Talitha Kumi, little girl, get up. So, why why is this why might mark have included the actual aramaic words in in a case like this and and elsewhere it does it it does seem to give that you mentioned peter earlier it's very possible that this this is reflective of that eyewitness element that's very vivid you know only a person who'd been there could have you know like and heard this this made an impression on him could be that jesus only rarely did this um and, and so it was a notable instance. Now, it, you know, there's a third place in Mark's gospel and only a third place where Aramaic is used. And that is on the cross when Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first verse of Psalm 22 in Aramaic. So, it, you know, I, I do think that uh, the... That, of course, is, is, is a, an invitation for us to read all of Psalm 22 as the narrative of the, the Messiah coming to be forsaken of God, but then ultimately being vindicated by the Father, raised, 
and um, you know producing much fruit and bringing life to the dead. So uh, you have you know the first case is a, a, a raising of a girl from the dead. The second case is the giving of of hearing to the deaf. So you know it's tempting to interpret those spiritually as well that mm-hmm. because of Jesus, what he does on the cross, being forsaken of God, and then in his resurrection on the third day, we have our ears of faith opened and our eyes our, our eyes of faith as well. It, it's interesting, I think, well, a couple of thoughts on those, trying to connect those three places in Mark's gospel where Aramaic is actually recorded by Mark. That in the first two cases, very plainly, it is that word of Jesus that does something. So Talitha Kumi and the girl gets up. Ephatha and the ears are opened, such that I want to draw then to Mark 15, that when Jesus says something on the cross, something's happening. He's he's actually doing something. And again, bringing all of Psalm 22 to bear when Jesus prays just that first verse, well, what's what's the happening there? Well, he's he's winning righteousness, vindication for, for all who trust in him, that, you know, in what looks like death and only death and horrible tragedy, God is actually active to bring life to his people. Yeah, it's it's really, I guess, to jump Gospels real quick. You um, can do that. When, I can, okay. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, you know, as soon as Jesus dies, you know, the, everything just kind of goes crazy, right? All these people, these holy people come into the holy city and you know, they were dead and now they're alive. And so, uh, you know, whatever that, whatever that event was, uh, w- which is only briefly described there, the, the theological message is transparent. That is, the death of Jesus is a life-giving one. Well, and I think that that fits well, too, with the other similarity to the first two accounts where Mark gives you the Aramaic. You know, Jesus says Talitha Kumi to a girl who's dead. She shouldn't be able to hear that. And and here he says, Ephatha, to ears that are closed. Those ears shouldn't be able to hear that. And yet, because the word of Christ is there, you know, the dead becomes alive, the the deaf becomes hearing. And so when the word of Christ is spoken at the cross, that which looks like it's only death is actually life-giving yet again. Right. But it has to only be received through uh, the ears and eyes of faith. Right. And not by what you saw happening there. That's right. Um, and, and I think that's where then in Mark 15, you need to you need to keep reading to where you get to the, as you mentioned earlier, the centurion's confession there at the cross, that it's right at the moment of Jesus' death. That's when this Gentile finally gets it. Truly, this is the Son of God. Absolutely. So, Pastor Roth, let's see, any any more on the words Ephatha, be opened? You mentioned earlier that the way that Mark describes the aftermath of that in verse 35 it's it's a very vivid language as to you know some unexpected words in terms of the way that Mark writes it in the Greek. Yeah, I'm, I I wanted I did want to connect Ephatha uh, briefly back to baptism. Oh, so sure, yeah. In, in Doctor Luther's um, longer baptismal rite, um, and this is this is the translation from uh, Luther's works, volume fifty three. Um, it says, "Then the priest, uh, that is the the pastor." shall lay his hands on the head of the child and pray the Our Father together with the sponsors, kneeling. Then he shall take spittle with his finger, touch the right ear therewith, and say, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And then the nose and the left ear and say, But thou devil flee, for God's judgment cometh speedily. 
then the child shall be led into the church and then baptized. So um, this was not um, a part of the baptismal liturgy that maybe caught on or, or continued um, <laughs> for too long. It is an option, of course, uh, in, in our agenda to, to use. I don't think the spittle uh, is, is in the rubrics anymore. Especially but now with COVID. Yeah, exactly. But certainly with the, the words epitha, that is be open, this shows us what's happening in baptism, that the Holy Spirit is coming and taking this beautiful little child who nonetheless is dead in sin and is uh, raising him or her up to newness of life in Christ, opening their ears to hear so that as they are raised in the church as Christians, the word of God is going to continue to come into those ears to nourish and strengthen their faith. We have plenty of other physical things that we do around baptism, such as the the lighting of a candle, yep, or perhaps the giving of a white garment. White garment, yep. And, and so that you know, I mean, again, perhaps the the same things that Luther writes in terms of the spit and, and sticking the fingers in the ears. But I mean, there's there's something to that. Those physical signs, even the the making of the sign of the cross, that's often done at our baptisms, is not something that absolutely has to be done, and yet bears some significance and is meant to teach what's going right. on in baptism. And I think this this matter of Ephatha and the ears actually being opened at a baptism, I think I think helps because as you said, you know, when you look at a baptism, when you look at that cute little baby, hey, that, that baby doesn't look like a sinner. That no. baby's that baby's adorable. That baby doesn't right. need to have his ears opened. And yet something like this I, I think is a a vivid reminder of just what is happening at, at baptism. Even the connection you mentioned, there's a connection too to the an exorcism that right. goes with this. Yeah, yeah. I mean the um, the word of God uh, is used to to drive out uh, unbelief and to drive out demons. And so, um, I I don't know that we should assume that the child has a devil, <laughs> but. Uh, but what, what those words are intended to do is to demonstrate what is happening in baptism. Christ is coming and driving away from this child the old evil foe. Right. Not that we would, would call it possession, but that, uh, well, the, is it Colossians that, that talks about how God has brought us out of the domain of darkness mm -hmm. and yep. into the, the kingdom of light, which is in his son, Christ Jesus, such that there is a you know, this is a you, this child was in enemy territory, and yeah. now God has brought this child into His kingdom to live under Him in in righteousness and life and light, and and that's a you know again that that unseen reality of baptism is something that these these ceremonies that we attach to baptism help us to keep in mind into what is something that's much more than just a cute Kodak moment. Yeah, especially in a, a world that is. Um highly rationalistic and highly scientific. Um, Ephesians 6 is very clear that our enemies are not visible. <laughs> so now you'd say today COVID and all these other diseases are invisible, but you can see them. You can see them under a, a microscope. But the enemies that we're fighting against are principalities and powers in the heavenly places that we cannot see. And Satan is prowling like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So let us never forget that the uh, the old evil foe is um, seeking to destroy us, and he's very real. And our defense against him is the real presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom we are united in baptism, and 
in whom we receive his body and blood through Holy Communion. All the more reason for us to bring our children to baptism speedily, to do so. I mean, we were talking about that earlier. Why wouldn't we bring our children? And especially if this is the reality that we're talking about. If if our children have this evil foe who's attacking them and who would hold them under his terrible domain, of course we're going to bring them to Jesus to set them free. Yeah, this is a, a really important point. I think that um, people tend to emphasize the negative aspects of um, of infant baptism <laughs> and sometimes neglect the positive. Namely, we need to get that child baptized as soon as possible so that just in case he or she dies, they don't go to hell, right? That sort of mentality. Well, look at what the, the uh, look at what St. Peter says in, in uh, Acts 2, right? So receive baptism and what do you get? Well, you get the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? And, and this promise is for you and your children. Now, what could be a better gift to give a child than the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, um, as someone to defend them, to strengthen their faith, to preserve them from the evil one? Let's emphasize the positive benefits of baptism, that it's union with Christ in death and resurrection and receiving the Holy Spirit. Right. I mean, it's, it's, I've often used the example of you know, opening gifts at Christmas. Of course, you're going to race to the, the Christmas tree to, to get all the gifts. And well, does the Lord work through his word that your children receive as they grow up? Of course. But he's got another gift under the tree, baptism. Why not go open it? Again, that, that positive aspect that it's not simply fleeing away from something negative, but this is something good that God has for your children. Let them have the gift. Let them, let them open. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let, uh, let Jesus spit on your kids. I think that's, <laughs> that's what, <laughs> with the water and the word. So There you go. So his ears are opened, his tongue is released, he speaks plainly. And then we've touched on this a little bit, but now we get specifically to verse 36. Jesus charged them to tell no one. Now he's doing this in a Gentile territory here, which is a little bit different than what we've seen elsewhere. And then, of course, we get the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. So it doesn't doesn't really work. What about this? You mentioned the so-called messianic secret earlier. And <laughs> well, I think so-called, so-called is... because it's it's just what some people have described. Sure, sure. But, but what is this matter of Jesus charging them to tell no one that doesn't really work? Well, I, I'm not sure I can tell you definitively, uh, because he, we know he did it, but uh, to try to pin down his motivations is to an extent a matter of speculation. So um, I'm, I'm willing to offer some possibilities, but I'm not going to be dogmatic about it either. Um, one, one interesting, um, element of Mark's gospel is that you have the commands in Israel not to spread the word, and then you have the feeding of the 5,000, which is a very public event. You know, that's the type of thing you couldn't keep under wraps even if you wanted to. And then in this case, um, in Mark, your next text that you're going to study is Mark 8, the feeding of, is it going to be 4,000? That's right. No, the 4,000, yeah, that's the 4,000, right? Yeah. Um, well, um, that also is, is going to be a very public event. So it could be, he, again, he's just controlling when he wants word to spread, um, and, and, and he has his own reasons for that. Um, that's one possibility. Well, and I think that also highlights, and I know this isn't our text for today, but that if, if that is what's going on, then that would highlight the feeding miracles as something that Jesus wants to be known. There's something in those miracles that he wants proclaimed publicly, 
in a way that stands above these miracles that that we're seeing yeah. him do here. And not that this is unimportant, but there's something particularly essential about those feeding miracles that people need to know about him as opposed to to these. And again, it's not to say these are unimportant. And if I can jump gospels, we know from John 6 that people miss the point of the feeding of the 5000 yes. too. But there's there's something there in the public nature of those that are are key to understanding Jesus' mission and ministry. Well, I, I, I mean, I think that his healing miracles, such as we see today, let's get back to Isaiah 35. I mean, this is very clearly showing that the eschatological messianic age has arrived. And that's the, shall I say, main point of these miracles, is not to show Jesus being this really cool, super wonder worker. That's not the point. Of course, he is blessing some individuals with the gift of true physical healing in, in this life, but he's he's showing that he's the Messiah. These are signals that um, that reveal him as the Messiah. Um, so I, I think that the, a de-emphasis on the miraculous uh, could be one of the things that he's he's trying to do through his so-called messianic secret. Now, it, it doesn't actually work. The more zealously no. they proclaim it, which I think you know, I, I, we talked a little bit about this back in Mark chapter 1. Jesus instructs the leper to say nothing, and he does it anyway. Here again, you have that disobedience to Jesus' command, whether or not that's, you know, is that good or bad that they don't do what Jesus says? Ah, that may not be the right question to ask. Uh, the, yeah. the point is, it doesn't happen. And I think it makes sense. It's true. And I, I mean, to look at it positively, you have something happen similarly in the book of Acts. Where you know they they get arrested, they get beaten, and what do they do? They just get out and preach more and more and more. Mm. So I, I do think that there's a very positive way in which you can say once the good news about Jesus is out of the bag, you can't stuff it back in, mm. and people you can't stop people from continuing to proclaim it and share it. Mark tells us what they actually say in this case. They are astonished beyond measure, and then they were saying this, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. We've talked a little bit about Jesus making the deaf hear and the mute speak, but then they go as far as to say he's done all things well. What are they confessing there? Well, well, I mean, you know. Or what should we understand that, yeah, from it? Yeah, what should we understand from it? Um, because so often— um, even with Jesus' disciples, they, they, they'll say and do things that reveal a truth about Jesus, but they don't completely understand the importance of it. For example, Peter at Caesarea Philippi, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus is like, well, I'm, yeah, I'm the Christ. That's right, Peter. And now I'm going to go and, and die. And Peter's like, you can't do that. <laughs> so uh, so, so that the, the proper confession can be made without fully understanding it. But this is clearly one of those places. And, and I, li- I like to, to use this, this phrase in sermons um, and, and maybe even conclude sermons with this phrase. Um, but, uh, boy, think about uh, the end of John's gospel, how it says, uh, if everything that Jesus did were to be written down, there would the world wouldn't have enough room in it uh, for all the books that would be written. Mm. So this is a reference to him um, working. Well, let's bring this into a lot of people get disappointed with Jesus because he doesn't deliver the miracles that they're looking for, doesn't deliver the healing they're looking for, doesn't deliver the prosperity they're looking for. But what uh, what does Paul say uh, in Second Corinthians about what he's going to boast in? He's going to boast in his weaknesses. He's going to boast in the fact that the Lord sent a messenger of Satan to harass him. 
because when he's weak, then he's strong. So let's, uh, let's correlate this with Romans 8, where St. Paul says that for those who love God and are called according, according to his purpose, all things are working together for their good. So our Lord Jesus is doing all things well for us and for our salvation every minute of every day, even when we can't feel it, um, perhaps especially when we can't feel it, because his word is reliable and we know he's doing all things well for us. And the greatest gift he will give us is in the resurrection. Is there, too, maybe a, a connection to creation? You know, he has done all things well. The word is, I think in Greek, it's, it's good. I'll call back to, you know, when God does something, it is good. Yeah, so I, I, this could be new creation language too, right? After each day of the creation, it's good. And then on the last day, he says, the sixth day, he says that everything was very good. And so, yeah, this is Jesus uh, recreating the world. And the deafness and the dumbness are signs of the brokenness of creation that was brought about by the fall into sin. And now Jesus is reversing that. Hmm. With just about a minute here, Pastor Roth, help us wrap things up this morning. Give us the good news from this text. So we were all born into this world deaf, uh, even though even, they do the, the hearing test for babies. And it's pretty amazing that they can, you know, they can tell you within a day or two of birth that uh, whether or not the, the child's hearing is, is, um, is good. But spiritually speaking, we're all born deaf and dumb. We and dumb here is a word we use more today to be silly or foolish, but and it means that we can't speak properly. So we're born into this world deaf and dumb, but the Holy Spirit is given to us to open our ears so that we can receive the word of Christ and have our tongues loosed so that we can praise our Lord rightly by gathering to receive his gifts and return thanksgiving and praise to him in the divine service. Pastor Carl Roth is the pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, helping us today with Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. It's a pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texans. If you have questions about Mark chapter 7 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, give us a call, send us an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from our listeners. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you again tomorrow.